Part 13 of Volume 2 of Plutarch's Parallel Lives. This is the LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume 2 of Plutarch's Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans. Translated by Bernadotte Perrin. Marcus Cato Major, Part 2. Having been elected consul with Valerius Flaccus, his intimate friend, the province which the Romans call hither Spain was allotted to his charge. Here, while he was subduing some of the tribes, and winning over others by diplomacy, a great host of barbarians fell upon him, and threatened to drive him disgracefully out of the province. He therefore begged the neighboring Celtiberians to become his allies. On their demanding two hundred talents pay for such assistance, all his officers thought it intolerable that Romans should agree to pay barbarians for assistance. But Cato said there was nothing terrible in it. Should they be victorious, they could pay the price with the spoils taken from the enemy, not out of their own purse. Whereas, should they be vanquished, there would be nobody left to pay, or to ask the price. In this battle, he was completely victorious, and the rest of his campaign was a brilliant success. Polybius, indeed, says that in a single day, the walls of all the cities, this side of the river Bytus, and there were very many, and full of warlike men, were torn down at his command. And Cato himself says that he took more cities than he spent days in Spain, nor is this a mere boast, since, in fact, there were four hundred of them. His soldiers got large booty in this campaign, and he gave each of them a pound of silver besides, saying that it was better to have many Romans go home with silver in their pockets than a few with gold. But in his own case, he says that no part of the booty fell to him, except what he ate and drank. Not that I find fault, he says, with those who seek profit by such a case. But I prefer to strive in bravery with the bravest, rather than in wealth with the richest, or in greed for money with the greediest. And he strove to keep not only himself, but also his associates, free from all taint of gain. He had five attendants with him in the field. One of these, whose name was Pacos, bought three boys from his own account from among the public prisoners. But finding that Cato was aware of the transaction, or ever he had come into his presence, went out and hanged himself. Cato sold the boys, and restored the money to the public treasury. While Cato still tarried in Spain, Scipio the Great, who was his enemy, wished to obstruct the current of his successes, and take away from him the administration of affairs in Spain got himself appointed his successor in command of that province. Then he set out with all speed possible, and brought Cato's command to an end. But Cato took five cohorts of men-at-arms, and five hundred horsemen as escort on his way home, and on the march subdued the tribe of the Lacitanians, and put to death six hundred deserters whom they delivered up to him. Scipio was enraged at this proceeding, but Cato, treating him with mock humility, said that only, then, would Rome be at her greatest, when her men of high birth refused to yield the palm of virtue to men of lower rank, and when plebeians like himself contended in virtue with their superiors in birth and reputation. However, in spite of Scipio's displeasure, the Senate voted that no change whatever be made in what Cato had ordered and arranged. And so the administration of Scipio was marked by inactivity and idleness, and detracted from his own, rather than from Cato's reputation. 
Cato, on the other hand, celebrated a triumph. Most men who strive more for reputation than for virtue, when once they have obtained the highest honors of consulship and triumphs, straightway adjust their future lives to the enjoyment of a pleasurable ease, and give up their public careers. But Cato did not thus remit and dismiss his virtue. Nay, rather like men first taking up the public service, and all athirst for honor and reputation, he girt his loins anew, and held himself ever ready to serve his friends and fellow citizens, either in the forum or in the field. And so it was that he assisted Tiberius Sempronius, the consul, in subduing the regions in Thrace and on the Danube, acting as his ambassador, and as legionary tribune under Manius Achilleus, he marched into Greece against Antiochus the Great, who gave the Romans more to fear than any man after Hannibal. For he had won back almost all of Seleucus Nicator's former dominions in Asia, reduced to subjection many warlike nations of barbarians, and was eager to engage the Romans, whom he deemed the only worthy foemen left for him. So he crossed into Greece with an army, making the freeing of the Greeks a specious ground for war. This they did not need at all, since they had recently been made free, and independent of Philip and the Macedonians, by grace of the Romans. Greece was at once a stormy sea of hopes and fears, being corrupted by her demagogues, with expectations of royal bounty. Accordingly, Manius sent envoys to the several cities. Most of those which were unsettled in their allegiance, Titus Flaminius restrained without ado, and quieted down, as I have written in his life. But Corinth, Patrae, and Aegeum were brought over to Rome by Cato. He also spent much time at Athens, and we are told that a certain speech of his is extant, which he addressed to the Athenian people in Greek, declaring that he admired the virtues of the ancient Athenians, and was glad to behold a city so beautiful and grand as theirs. But this is not true. On the contrary, he dealt with the Athenians through an interpreter. He could have spoken to them directly, but he always clung to his native ways, and mocked at those who were lost in admiration of anything that was Greek. For instance, he poked fun at Postumius Albinus, who wrote a history in Greek, and asked the indulgence of his readers. Cato said that they might have shown him indulgence had he undertaken his task in consequence of a compulsory vote of the Amphitheotic Assembly. Moreover, he says the Athenians were astonished at the speed and pungency of his discourse. For what he himself set forth and with brevity, the interpreter would repeat to them at great length and with many words. And on the whole, he thought that the words of the Greeks were born on their lips, but those of the Romans in their hearts. Now Antiochus had blocked up the narrow pass of Thermopylae with his army, adding trenches and walls to the natural defenses of the place, and sat there, thinking that he had locked the war out of Greece. And the Romans did indeed despair utterly of forcing a direct passage. But Cato, calling to mind the famous compass and circuit of the pass which the Persians had once made, took a considerable force and set out under cover of darkness. They climbed the heights, but their guide, who was a prisoner of war, lost the way, and wandered about in impracticable and precipitous places, till he had filled the soldiers with dreadful dejection and fear. Cato, seeing their peril, bade the rest remain quietly where they were, while he himself, with a certain Lucius Manlius, an expert mountain climber, made his way along, with great toil and hazard, in the dense darkness of a moonless night, 
his vision much impeded and obscured by wild olive trees and rocky peaks, until at last they came upon a path. This, they thought, led down to the enemy's camp. So they put marks and signs on some conspicuous cliffs, which towered over Mount Calidromus, and then made their way back again to the main body. This, too, they conducted to the marks and signs, struck into the path indicated by these, and started forward. But when they had gone on a little way, the path failed them, and a ravine yawned to receive them. Once more dejection and fear were rife. They did not know, and could not see, that they were right upon the enemy whom they sought. But presently gleams of daylight came. Here and there a man thought he heard voices, and soon they actually saw a Greek outpost entrenched at the foot of the cliffs. So then Cato halted his forces there, and summoned the men of Firmum to a private conference. These soldiers he had always found trusty and zealous in his service. When they had run up and stood grouped about him, he said, I must take one of the enemy's men alive, and learn from him who they are that form this advance guard, what their number is, and with what disposition and array their main body awaits us. But the task demands the swift and bold leaps of lions, fearlessly rushing, all unarmed, through the timorous beasts on which they prey. So spake Cato, and the Fermians instantly started, just as they were, rushed down the mountainside, and ran upon the enemy's sentinels. Falling upon them unexpectedly, they threw them all into confusion, and scattered them in flight. One of them they seized, arms and all, and delivered him over to Cato. From the captive, Cato learned that the main force of the enemy was encamped in the pass with the king himself, and that the detachment guarding the pass over the mountains was composed of six hundred picked Aetolians. Despising their small numbers and their carelessness, he led his troops against them at once, with bray of trumpet and war-cry, being himself the first to draw his sword. But when the enemy saw his men pouring down upon them from the cliffs, they fled to the main army, and filled them all with confusion. Meanwhile, Manius, also, down below, threw his whole force forward into the pass, and stormed the enemy's fortifications. Antiochus, being hit in the mouth with a stone, which knocked his teeth out, wheeled his horse about for very anguish. Then his army gave way everywhere before the Roman onset. Although flight for them meant impracticable roads and helpless wanderings, while deep marshes and steep cliffs threatened those who slipped and fell, still they poured along through the pass into these, crowding one another on in the fear of the enemy's deadly weapons, and so destroyed themselves. Cato, who was ever rather generous, it would seem, in his own praises, did not hesitate to follow up his great achievements with boastings equally great, is very pompous in his account of this exploit. He says that those who saw him at that time pursuing the enemy, hewing them down, felt convinced that Cato owed less to Rome than Rome to Cato. Also that the consul Manius himself, flushed with victory, threw his arms about him, still flushed with his own victory, and embraced him for a long time, crying out for joy that neither he himself, nor the whole Roman people, could fittingly requite Cato for his benefactions. Immediately after the battle he was sent to Rome as the messenger of his own triumphs. He had a fair passage to Brundisium, crossed the peninsula from there to Tarentum in a single day, and traveled thence four days more, and on the fifth day after landing reached Rome, where he was the first to announce the victory. He filled the city full of joy and sacrifices, 
and the people with the proud feeling that it was able to master every land and sea. These are perhaps the most remarkable features of Cato's military career. In political life, he seems to have regarded the impeachment and conviction of malefactors as a department worthy of his most zealous efforts, for he brought many prosecutions himself, assisted others in bringing theirs, and even instigated some to begin prosecutions, as, for instance, Petilius against Scipio. That great man, however, trampled the accusations against him underfoot, as the splendor of his house and his own inherent loftiness of spirit prompted him to do. And Cato, unable to secure his capital conviction, dropped the case. But he so cooperated with the accusers of Lucius, Scipio's brother, as to have him condemned to pay a large fine to the state. This debt Lucius was unable to meet, and was therefore liable to imprisonment. Indeed, it was only at the intercession of the tribunes that he was at last set free. We are also told that a certain young man, who had got a verdict of civil outlawry against an enemy of his dead father, was passing through the forum on the conclusion of the case and met Cato, who greeted him and said, These are the sacrifices we must bring to the spirits of our parents, not lambs and kids, but the condemnations and tears of their enemies. However, he himself did not go unscathed, but wherever in his political career he gave his enemies the slightest handle, he was all the while suffering prosecutions and running risk of condemnation. It is said that he was defendant in nearly fifty cases, and in the last one when he was eighty-five years of age. It was in the course of this that he uttered the memorable saying, It is hard for one who has lived among men of one generation to make his defense before those of his another. But even with this case he did not put an end to his forensic contests. But four years later, at the age of ninety, he impeached Servius Galba. Indeed, he may be said, like Nestor, to have been vigorous and active among three generations. For after many political struggles with Scipio the Great, as told above, he lived to be contemporary with Scipio the Younger, who was the elder's grandson by adoption, and the son of that Paulus Aemilius, who subdued Perseus and the Macedonians. Ten years after his consulship, Cato stood for the censorship. This office towered, as it were, above every other civic honor, and was in a way the culmination of a political career. The variety of its powers was great, including that of examining into the lives and manners of the citizens. Its creators thought that no one should be left to his own devices and desires, without inspection and review, either in his marrying or in the begotting of his children or in the ordering of his daily life, or in the entertainment of his friends. Nay, rather, thinking that these things revealed a man's real character more than did his public and political career, they set men into office to watch, admonish, and chastise, that no one should turn aside to wantonness and forsake his native and customary mode of life. They chose to this office one of the so-called patricians and one of the plebeians. These officers were called censors, and they had authority to degrade a knight, or to expel a senator who led an unbridled and disorderly life. They also revised the assessments of property, and arranged the citizens in lists according to their social and political classes. There were other great powers also connected with the office. Therefore, when Cato stood for it, nearly all the best-known and most influential men of the senatorial party united to oppose him. 
the men of noble parentage among them were moved by jealousy thinking that nobility of birth would be trampled in the mire if men of ignoble birth forced their way up to the summits of honor and power while those who were conscious of base practices and of a departure from ancestral customs feared the severity of the man which was sure to be harsh and inexorable in the exercise of power therefore after due consultation and preparation they put in opposition to cato seven candidates for the office who sought the favor of the multitude with promises of mild conduct in office supposing forsooth that it wanted to be ruled with a lax and indulgent hand cato on the contrary showed no complacence whatever but plainly threatened wrongdoers in his speeches and loudly cried that the city had need of a great purification he abjured the people if they were wise not to choose the most agreeable physician but the one who was most in earnest he himself he said was such a physician and so was valerius flaccus of the patricians with him as colleague and him alone he thought he could cut and sear to some purpose the hydra-like luxury and effeminacy of the time as for the rest of the candidates he saw that they were all trying to force their way into the office in order to administer it badly since they feared those who would administer it well and so truly great was the roman people and so worthy of great leaders that they did not fear cato's rigor and haughty independence but rejected rather those agreeable candidates who it was believed would do everything to please them and elected flaccus to the office along with cato to cato they gave ear not as to one soliciting office but as to one already in office and issuing his decrees as censor then cato made lucius valerius flaccus his colleague and friend chief senator he also expelled many members of the senate including lucius quintius this man had been consul seven years before and a thing which gave him more reputation than the consulship even was brother of titus flaminius who conquered king philip the reason for his expulsion was the following there was a youth who ever since his boyhood had been the favorite of lucius this youth lucius kept ever about him and took with him on his campaigns in greater honor and power than one of his nearest friends and kinsmen had he was once administering the affairs of his consular province and at a certain banquet this youth as was his wont reclined at his side and began to pay his flatteries to a man who in his cups was too easily led about i love you so much he said that once when there was a gladiatorial show at home a thing which i had never seen i rushed away from it to join you although my heart was set on seeing a man slaughtered well for that matter said lucius don't lie there with any grudge against me for i will cure it thereupon he commanded that one of his men who were lying under sentence of death be brought to the banquet and that a lictor with an axe stand by his side then he asked his beloved if he wished to see the man smitten the youth said he did and lucius ordered the man's head to be cut off this is the version which most writers give of the affair and so cicero has represented cato himself as telling the story in his dialogue on old age but livy says the victim was a gallic deserter and that lucius did not have the man slain by a lictor but smote him with his own hand and that this is the version of the story in a speech of cato's on the expulsion of lucius from the senate by cato his brother was greatly indignant 
and appealed to the people, urging that Cato state his reasons for the expulsion. Cato did so, narrating the incident of the banquet. Lucius attempted to make denial, but when Cato challenged him to a formal trial of the case with a wager of money upon it, he declined. Then the justice of his punishment was recognized. But once, when a spectacle was given in the theater, he passed along by the senatorial seats and took his place as far away from them as he could. Then the people took pity upon him and shouted till they had forced him to change his seat, thus rectifying as far as possible and alleviating the situation. Cato expelled another senator who was thought to have had good prospects for the consulship, namely Manilius, because he embraced his wife in open day before the eyes of his daughter. For his own part, he said, he would never embrace his wife unless it thundered loudly. It was a pleasantry of his to remark that he was a happy man when it thundered. Cato was rather bitterly censured for his treatment of Lucius, the brother of Scipio, whom, though he had achieved the honor of a triumph, he expelled from the equestrian order. He was thought to have done this as an insult to the memory of Scipio Africanus. But he was most obnoxious to the majority of his enemies because he lopped off extravagance in living. This could not be done away with outright, since most of the people were already infected and corrupted by it, and so he took a roundabout way. He had all apparel, equipages, jewelry, furniture, and plate, the value of which, in any case, exceeded 1,500 drachmas, assessed at ten times its worth, wishing by means of larger assessments to make the owner's taxes also larger. Then he laid a tax of three on every thousand asses thus assessed, in order that such property holders, burdened by their charges, and seeing that people of equal wealth who led modest and simple lives paid less into the public treasury, might desist from their extravagance. As a result, both classes were incensed against him, both those who endured the taxes for the sake of their luxury, and those no less who put away their luxury because of the taxes. For most men think themselves robbed of their wealth if they are prevented from displaying it, and that display of it is made in the superfluities, not in the necessities of life. This, we are told, is what most astonished Ariston the philosopher, namely that those who possessed the superfluities of life should be counted happy, rather than those well provided with life's necessary and useful things. Scopus, the Thessalian, when one of his friends asked for something of his, which was of no great service to him, with the remark that he asked for nothing that was necessary and useful, replied, And yet my wealth and happiness are based on just such useless and superfluous things. Thus the desire for wealth is no natural adjunct to the soul, but is imposed upon it by the false opinions of the outside world. End of Cato Major, Part 2